Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton and we're approaching our 200th episode of Beyond Well. In the spirit of not wanting to miss anything or perhaps just being a little sentimental, we'd like to visit some of these episodes that you might have missed. We did several shows on anxiety and we're going to highlight some of the best in the next few weeks. Before we get going, we'd like to thank Active Recovery TMS for the support of our show. TMS is your choice for transcranial magnetic stimulation in the Pacific Northwest with neighborhood offices near you to make it convenient and they work with your insurance to make sure you're covered. For more information or to figure out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. Anxiety, a subject we've tackled in past episodes, and as we revisit some of our past favorites, we'd be remiss if we didn't listen to the Anxiety Sisters. They had so much to say. Their show appeared as a two-part episode. So without further ado, episode one. Beyond Well, I'm Sheila Hamilton, and today we have part one of our two-part interview with the authors of The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachek. I have to tell you, there are so many cool books being written now around the topic of mental health. Mostly the reason that I'm saying this is because the genre of talking about mental health has moved from this very clinical approach to talking about things that we suffer with and deal with every single day to a much more humanistic, humorous, and beautiful way of actually accepting who we are and all of the differences in our brain. And I want you to put this book at the top of your mind. It's called The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. I want to introduce you to Maggie Sarachek and Abby Greenberg, two women who have firsthand experience with anxiety. And instead of writing the book that they could have given over to some psychiatrists or psychologists, they wrote it themselves from their perspectives of what it was like to actually go through these symptoms, the panic attacks, the sweating, the difficulty we know so many people who suffer from anxiety have. And then they also share exactly what they're doing to try to live with anxiety every day. Abby and Maggie, Mags and Abs, it's so good to see you. <laughs> Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Okay, so I want you to go back to the first time both of you realized that you probably suffer from anxiety. Maggie, if you want to go first. For me, like many, many anxiety sufferers, it took a very long time to believe these physical symptoms that I was having could be anxiety. So I, I really believed I was suffering from um, some sort of stomach problem or some sort of stomach cancer even. And I was going around to doctors, to cardiologists and nutritionists and gastroenterologists and therapists and psychiatrists and you say past life regressionists. Um, I was really anyone, we say any, both of us say anyone who would take our money, we were there trying to figure out why I was getting increasing symptoms of panic attacks, you know, why I was always nauseous and I couldn't eat. And when I ate, I couldn't keep anything down and I didn't have anorexia in any way. And so people kept saying to me, maybe it's panic. I, I was like, no, no, I, I know what it feels like to be nervous. This cannot be panic. I actually was on the phone with 
someone I didn't know very well who happened to answer the phone at my brother's house. And I was telling her what was going on with me. Usually someone says, oh, how are you? You say, I'm great. (laughs) Um, But I was like, I'm not so, I'm not doing so well, actually. Here's what's happening. She said, yeah. She said, you, you're having panic attacks. And I said, there's just no way this could be panic. And she said, no, no, because I've had them too. Wow. This is what it is. And, and then it started to hit me more and more like, well, perhaps that's right. Perhaps this is panic. How old were you when that diagnosis finally came through? What was I? Probably about 25, 26. And you likely struggled with anxiety oh, struggled. by the time you were a kid. I mean, I struggled yeah. in different ways. I had real separation anxiety as a yeah. kid. And the panic really, about six months after my father died, very traumatic illness in many ways. The panic attack started to become so intense that I eventually was in this space where I I was living in New York City, but I, I couldn't get on my elevator. And I lived on the 16th floor and I wow. could not get on the subway and I couldn't drive in a car and I couldn't drive in the rain. And so I was really heading very quickly and I was pretty much there toward a, a form of agoraphobia. Because wow. there were just so many things I couldn't do. Like so many people, transportation was a big issue. Do you know, it was fascinating about what you just said. I interviewed the head of a medical system here who's very aware of how often mental health shows up in these physiological symptoms. He actually did a study and determined that 50% of the people who showed up at urgent care were actually suffering from mental health disorders because it takes so long for them to actually get the diagnosis and regular ER and other physicians aren't really trained about how to see a person who's in mental health crisis. They're all just looking what's on the MRI and what's on the CAT scan, right? That we could save billions of dollars if we were actually looking for mental health as as a potential reason behind some of these physical symptoms. Yeah, we actually cited a study in our book that they did in Canada that showed much the same thing, especially when people were coming in with cardiac symptoms. Yes. It was even a higher rate. In that study, they did find that if the doctor or nurse spent even 20 minutes really explaining to someone why panic would give you physical symptoms, they were much less likely to come back to the emergency wow. room. People yeah. will go five or six times, you know, right. they'll go many times. Yeah. What What's your story? Is there a similarity there? In- the similarity is that both Mags and I, we feel like we've always been anxiety sisters since we were little kids, but we didn't know it at the time. I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder when I was 46. But I now remember being as young as five and having all kinds of rituals and compulsions and obsessions. I just didn't share them with anybody. I I thought, you know, this is probably not a good thing to tell my parents. <laughs> they won't, you know, in those days, you know, we're talking about, you know, I grew up in the in the 70s and in the 80s and in those days the mental health conversation wasn't even as robust as it is now, and it's nowhere near where it needs to be. So much better. When Mags and I met in college in, in the 1980s, we both were suffering from panic symptoms, from anxiety symptoms, from I had plenty of OCD going on, and yet I don't think we really we really understood it was anxiety. We just both felt, you know, we, we felt attracted to each other as kindred spirits. Like we just both had this panicked look on our face all the time. <laughs> and, and, we, and we just sort of kind of struggled through it together. 
so that's the part that Mags and I have in common is that we, we were struggling since we were kids. We didn't have the vocabulary for it. Mm -hmm. We didn't know, oh, this is anxiety. But I, I was originally diagnosed with panic disorder and talk about emergency room visits. I stopped going to the same hospital because I was embarrassed. Wow. So I went to the first hospital twice in a row and then felt too ashamed to go back to them again with my next quote unquote heart attack. So yeah. I went to uh, 20 miles away to a different hospital another two times. And every time they would do all the tests to see if I'd had a heart attack and they would do the EKG and they even did a chest X-ray and they did blood work. Wow. And they'd come in and they'd, and the doctor would say to me, you have had no signs of any kind of cardiac malfunction. I mean, wow. you are really okay. And I said, have you ever seen house? Keep looking. <laughs> because it, I really thought I was dying. I, you know, yeah. I mean, every, I got everything. I got the whole Bayer aspirin commercial, you know, yeah. like the dizziness in the left arm. I got the whole thing. Yeah. And I said, this just can't be anxiety. There's no way this can be anxiety. And then, you know, eventually um, I, I started seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist and lo and behold, it really was anxiety, but you know, but I was originally diagnosed with panic disorder. That was in my thirties. Wow. Then in my forties, I went to a really skilled psychiatrist who really, really understands the nuances of, of anxiety disorder. And there are lots of nuances. Oh. It's amazing. I want to get back to something both of you talked about. The sense of nausea that people feel. I remember my stepdaughter would say, I can't go to school because my stomach hurts. And then the moment she got on the school bus, she would throw up. And then, of course, you know, you have, you run the, like the battery of tests because you're so concerned about something like stomach cancer. But I was really heartened to see that you guys are actually bringing up the new data that shows the connection between the gut-brain axis and just how controlled we are by our guts. You know, I think the old image of how we dealt with our well-being was that the brain told the gut what to do, right? But we now know the messengers are coming from the gut just as much, and it's this big communication going on all the time. How did, once you guys got that data, how did you change your approach to your own self-care or have you done something differently because there is so much new data around the connection? You know, we really already knew the connection between the stomach, even before we read the second brain and started to read all the research coming out of McMaster in Canada, which is where a doctor named Stephen Collins is doing amazing work. One of the studies that absolutely fascinated me was that he would do a biome transplant, a gut biome transplant. Mm -hmm from anxious mice to calm mice. Yeah. And calm mice became anxious and the anxious mice became calm. And I've also read so much stuff about Parkinson's disease, which now they know that they can actually detect stomach indications of Parkinson's 20 years before a single neurological symptom will show up. Isn't that so, wild? So this stuff is, like you said, cutting edge, and this is the future is in the gut biome. There's a new field called neurogastroenterology, which is yeah. specifically just uh, designed to focus on the gut-brain connection and the vagus nerve, which is the two-way street that communicates yeah. back and forth. But I would say that Maggie and I knew in our guts <laughs> because we both suffered so much from anxiety. And once we figured out that it was anxiety, it became very obvious the gut-brain connection to us because we totally had the whole, uh, all the symptoms of irritable bowel, irritable bowel syndrome going on. Right. So so I don't know that, that finding out about research changed things for us, but certainly understanding the gut-brain connection in the first place absolutely changed 
what we did. I mean, I actually went gluten-free for three years yeah. to see if that would help. And, and it didn't actually yeah. <laughs> for me. So many of my friends who have anxiety have actually tried that too. And I think the, the other advice is take a really good full spectrum probiotic. But I do think that there's something incredibly wonderful in just the knowledge that this is actually part of what's making you feel the way that you feel without maybe having the answer about how to control it. Have you done anything differently in your life, given that knowledge about what is happening with your gut when you're having these very strong, strong physiological symptoms? I, I always say this is there's like a two-edged sore here. Obviously, this research is so powerful. One of the things we both worry about is that when you have an illness, like a, a brain illness, right? There's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there and we've been to many of them. So we know. <laughs> they took your money. <laughs> yeah, they took our money. They took, you know, the acid and alkaline of my tongue. I mean, yeah. I, uh, I've done it all. And yeah. Abby's done it all. A, a lot of the research right now, I think, even though, of course, probiotics and this and that, I'm not sure that it it's yet pointing to an actual, okay, here's the research and here's what you do. I am not sure, even with probiotics, like someone really has to understand yeah. probiotics really well, and it has to be tailored to your, what your biome needs. And yeah. even yeah. then we're still lacking in some of the research for some of the claims that are made. Yeah. Oh, and, and like I said, I did, I did the gluten-free thing for three years and that did not help my anxiety. It helped other things, but not my anxiety. And I, I did that NutraVal, which is where they evaluate every bodily fluid that you have mm -hmm. uh, to determine what exactly is, is in your biome. And I had a prescription probiotic designed exactly for me that I took for years. Wow. And being very honest, spent a lot of money on it, but I'm being very honest when I'm saying that I'm no longer on that probiotic and, you know, it, it did not, it didn't change my anxiety. What does work for you? I really want you guys to go through some of the most effective behavioral treatments and also physical exposure and nature and walking and friends mm -hmm. and company. Please go down the list. Let's start with you, Abs. Before we would even go into the techniques, I would say that for both me and Mags, our lives changed and our worlds started to grow again when we changed how we felt about anxiety in general. Yeah. We start. We used to think it was something you had to stop it. You had to eliminate it. You had to get it out of your life. You didn't want it. It was a disease, get rid of it. And we spent a lot of years fighting our anxiety. Mm -hmm. And as you well know, and most people who've had anxiety and have done the fighting thing know that what, what we pay attention to grows. So actually fighting anxiety makes it worse. Yeah. So it took us a really long time to figure that part out. But once we figured that out and said, wait a minute, what if it's not so terrible to have anxiety? What if that's mm -hmm. just part of being human? And what if we can be happy even with anxiety? Mm -hmm. Then what? And that just, we flipped it on its head. So I would say that the very first thing that happened to us is that we stopped trying to fight the anxiety mm -hmm. and instead considered, oh, if we, if we don't fight it, then how can we manage the symptoms? Because yeah. those can be doozies. And it's, we're not suggesting that people just sit, sit back and enjoy a panic attack because there's no such thing. Right, exactly. But, but, and, and then we started with the techniques. But it was before that where we changed our mind about what the goal was. The goal was yeah. no longer to stop or eliminate the anxiety. I love that you're saying that, especially with a lot of the corporate work that I'm doing right now. I try to tell managers and corporate leaders, your employee with anxiety is likely going 
going to be a higher performing employee. They're likely to be more responsible in terms of when they meet deadlines. They are consistently ahead of the curve in seeing dangerous trends. I mean, there's so much amazing data about the benefits of people who have anxiety because that extra bandwidth that they're out there paying attention to is something other people who are more confident, relaxed, and settled don't see. So I love that you just talked about that, accepting where we are, our neurodiversity and, and how it can actually help as well. Ask Abby how, how much before the whole coronavirus lockdown started, did I say to her? Oh yeah. <laughs> she called it months in advance. Yeah. I said, Mags, your anxiety is really getting you right now. We are not going to have a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Obviously, what Abby said is, is so important. And then I think our step two that's so important, and I know we will get to techniques, is that idea of this whole idea of self-compassion yeah. really changed our lives as well. This idea that if we yell at ourselves about our brain illness, if we are talk to ourselves as if we are very disappointed in ourselves, which sometimes we are, that harshness, that lack of understanding sends you more into that fight, flight, or freeze, you know, because this is a brain illness also to do with your, you know, vagus nerve, obviously, but this is a brain illness and it sends you further in. So really learning to talk to yourself as you would a close friend was very transformative and understanding that, you know, we're not alone in the struggle. To struggle is to be human. We all have struggles, right? We all struggle. That sense of connection with other people, like our connection with each other, Abby and I, but then our connection with our community now of over 200,000 people, anxiety sufferers around the world, that sense of connection is one of the most healing pieces. I know people look for techniques, techniques, but I think what Abby was saying is a lot of it is how you approach yourself, how you approach anxiety, the empathy that you develop. Well, and it's also, I mean, any time that we can see ourselves sort of mirrored in other people, mm-hmm. when we just feel more community, we feel more a part of the human race, right? And so when someone describes a childhood that was almost exactly like yours, you're like, oh, my sister. That's why I love yes. to call it the Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. Do you know, I haven't ever seen any data that breaks down anxiety by gender. Is it more common? Uh, for women? Yes. Yeah. And do you think that's hormonal? And and, and guess what? Twice as likely. Women are twice as likely as men to suffer from anxiety. So there's a lot of statistics now out there. Um, I think the latest one's on the NIH website. First of all, a lot of the data is based on self-report. Yeah. And many men either don't know what they're feeling as anxiety. They may call it something else, stress, Anger. Anger, right. Right. Um, Also, for men, the stigma is often worse than it is for women because of the stress on achievement Western culture places on men. They're not allowed to show, quote unquote, weakness. Unfortunately, mental health issues are still equated with weakness in our culture. And this Maggie's and my life work is to change that if humanly possible for for those reasons. And because they, they actually also are really now um, thinking that women and men process serotonin differently, mm-hmm. things to do with estrogen. So there's there's for any number of reasons, women, you know, we we won the lottery. 
<laughs> we, we get to yeah. we get to have anxiety and yeah. then we get to go through menopause. I mean, it is a part. oh, what about what about the hormone surge after birth and then the, oh my gosh. the crash? I mean, come on. I mean, oh you know, post yes. birth rate of anxiety and depression is just like it's almost hard to not have that because it's so prevalent. It's really in there, done that, got the t-shirt. What <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a great place to wrap up today it was part one of our interview with. Abby Greenberg, and Maggie Sirachek. You can follow the Anxiety Sisters on Facebook. And if you're listening and you love our content, please give us a thumbs up or a review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again and make it a great day. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.